be here. I'm from Lebanon, so it is a treat to get to be in the big city of Bend. And um, this morning, just being here this weekend is really interesting for me because um, it kind of feels like home and really doesn't feel like home at the same time. It's this uh, weird convergence of life for me. Um, I was actually born in Bend and uh, lived in Prineville, Oregon for about a year, which I don't remember because I was one. And uh, lived there, and then my family moved to the Bay Area of California and, and was there till I was like in first grade. And then we moved back to Prineville. And uh, I spent from first grade to my freshman year in Prineville, Oregon. So Bend um, holds this special place because it had amazing stores uh, like Food for Less and things like that that we didn't have in Prineville. Uh, and movie theaters, you know, it was this treat to come to Bend. And uh, every time I drive through the high desert, there's a sense that's where I grew up, my childhood, and Bend was the big city for me. And uh, my freshman year, mid-semester, uh, my father thought it would be a good idea to move to L.A., right out of Prineville, which was fantastic for me, um, raising sheep, going to a, a suburb of L.A., right outside of Inglewood and Compton. It was, it was fantastic. <laughs> and... Um, really wasn't a hard transition at all. I fit in just really fast and uh, didn't talk for three years, stuff like that. Um, but I spent, spent high school there in, actually, it wasn't so close to Compton, in Whittier, California, and that's where Ken was. So I actually know Ken's wife, Tamara Lambert, uh, Whitesman now, and she was in my, in my father's youth group in Prineville. So there's faces that I know that I moved to Whittier and uh, I met people like Linda Janney. For those of you that don't know Linda, she helps with it. Yeah, that's right. She's worth cheering for. Yeah, junior <laughs> hires. But she's right here. Wow, okay. Um, Linda and Chris Steary and, and, and Ken as well. And, and grew up there and then uh, went to the Master's College, which is in Santa Clarita, California, just about an hour north of L.A. And uh, met my beautiful wife, Rose, who's here today. And um, right after school, my parents had actually left Prineville and, and moved back up to the Portland, Vancouver area. And uh, looking for a job right out of college with a Bible degree. And uh, actually, Ken called me and said, hey, would you come and come check this out with a couple other pastors? And um, got to meet with the pastors at Whittier Hills Baptist Church where I met him. And it was fantastic. And, uh, and Ken actually ended up hiring me. And then he left. So we didn't, didn't work that long together. It was, he just left me high and dry over there. He didn't really leave me high and dry. But um, he hired me. And then I think it was about two or three or four months uh, after that, he left. But it was a good time with Ken. I knew Ken because he had he'd worked with my dad in the church. And um, it's, it's really interesting to be here standing uh, at Antioch Church uh, in Bend, Oregon, because in those three months while I was at Whittier, uh, I did see just Ken wrestle super hard. He, his heart truly, uh, not exaggerating, was just burning for Bend. Um, I was coming on and was super psyched, and, and he was doing his job well, but he was also really in tune and really wanted to be in Bend and, and had this vision for church planning and just wanted to be there and had a heart for Central Oregon. So I, I got to see him wrestle through that and I actually did learn a lot from Ken. Um, if I could say something about him, he's a man of conviction um, and believes deeply in the things of God and, and wants to give his whole life to that, and I admire that and learn from that, and I love that he's convicted about everything. Uh, the way to cook rice, the best place to eat, anything. He just, he's got an opinion, and, and it's, it's fun to disagree sometimes and agree with him. Um, so it was just, it was a really good time, and it's good to be standing here today to see the vision played out. Um, 
I don't know how long, a year or so into this thing. And uh, just the sense of really wanting God to work in Central Oregon, uh, to give our whole hearts to him. And so it really is a privilege. I, I do count it a privilege to be here with you and to be a part of this group, even for this, this Sunday morning. I've got to spend some time with the high schoolers uh, in Mexico in another retreat. Had a great time. So before we get started and dive into the word, let's just give this morning to God and ask that uh, he would just move our hearts this morning. So would you bow with me in prayer? Father, we are undeserving people, undeserving of your grace and your mercy, and for you to work in our lives. Uh, But we stand confident in Christ and his work on the cross that we throw our whole selves into. Even this morning, we ask for grace uh, through the cross to speak to our hearts, open our eyes, that that, uh, we may see just beautiful things from your word. Uh, convict our hearts. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would lift up, be working in and among us, lifting up your son uh, to the place that he deserves in our hearts, in our minds, in our lives. We just give this time to you. I beg you to work um, through your word so that you would be glorified in this life, through our lives, through this church, We just give this time to you and ask that you would work. Pray these things in Christ's name, amen. Um, I've been listening online to to the different sermons the last couple weeks, just so I kind of have an idea of of what's been going on at Antioch. And um, I've loved, I sit in my office and kind of work and just listen. And and I I got to hear Ken's heart while I was at Whittier as well, just of of what church could be like, what what life could look like, uh, giving it all to Christ and holding him up and, and devoting our lives to that. And there's a sense uh, at Antioch, and there's a sense I can just I can tell that we just have this strong desire to live life to its fullest, to know Christ and to have Him at the center, and have it be this blazing thing that changes us, that affects everything we do, from from how we work and how we raise our families to how we live. There's just this sense, uh, a calling out that let's get this done. The time is short. And let's give it up. And as I think about that and, and had that sense in me, um, I, I love that sense. That's how I want to live my life. And a picture comes to mind uh, of a story, a true story of John Muir. Uh, if you don't know who John Muir is, he was uh, one of America's foremost conservationists. And uh, he's, he's actually probably credited with saving the Yosemite Valley, or at least um, uh, helping it become federally protected grounds. Um, back in the 1800s, he just gave his life to nature, spent his life in the woods, saving, protecting, informing, and uh, a lot of different woods, Sierra Mountains in the California area, and actually in the Northwest are named after him, just this great, uh, this great man back in the day. And there's a story, there's these epic stories of him, of uh, Teddy Roosevelt coming out to meet with him. And uh, Teddy Roosevelt was the president, and he wants to come out and see Yosemite. And, and Roosevelt just loved the outdoors as well. And there's these stories of them going out by themselves into the woods and camping out for days on end, and Muir just convincing Roosevelt to protect the land as they're camping in the Yosemite Valley. Just these epic stories of, of Roosevelt leaving, and it, it, he just lived this epic life. And uh, one of my favorite stories is, is one in, in 1874, in the month of December, uh, one of his, his buddies, one of his friends, had a cabin in the Sierra Mountains. And uh, it was right, on, right in the thick of the woods, and, and so Muir goes, and he stays with him for about a week or so. 
And they're in this just this beautiful cabin and this massive storm in the Sierra Mountains. It's, it's near the Pacific Ocean. And this massive storm rolls in and it's raining and thundering and the trees are bending. And it's just this amazing uh, experience. And it's just the perfect time. You know, when there's a storm, you kind of cozy up, grab a book or, or you're with your friends. If you're on vacation, it's beautiful. You just light the fire get all nice and cozy, have this wonderful conversation, eat and drink and just soak in just while it's raining and storming, being in the comforts of your house. And uh, Muir wouldn't have any of that. He gets up in the middle of this storm and, and he exits the cabin and he starts to hike in the middle of this storm. And he finds this high open ridge and this giant dug fir tree And in the middle of this massive storm, while everything is whirling and it's just thundering and lightning, he scrambles to the top of this tree, holds on, and rides out the storm at the top of the tree. Just taking in the raw energy, just being in it. Experiencing the smells and the sounds and the frightening and just the the terrible aspect of this storm. And he rides this thing out just lashed by the wind, whipped at the top of this tree. I love that story. Let's go climb a tree. No, I, I just I love that story when it wells up, this sense of like, you know what, I, I, I want to leave my comfort, I want to leave my safety, I just want it. I want to experience it. I want to be caught up in this storm. And that's the picture, that's the picture that I have in my mind of a life lived in pursuit of God, of, of this, this sense of calling, of leaving our comforts, leaving our security, what the world would tell us, not just hunkering down, leaving that, leaving just our little lives that we're trying to take care of and get all organized and nice and neat and scramble up to the top of the highest tree in the middle of this storm and just take it in, this storm of who God is. That's the sense I have about this, just wanting to be in it, wanting to experience it. And life isn't always like that. I know that. It's not always just this amazing, raw energy taking it in. But how do we become people? How do I become a person who is attentive enough, attentive enough, start stuttering here, attentive enough to drop everything and run to the top of the tree, to live life in this storm of who God is? How do we become people in this pursuit who want that, who who live that, who train that? Because there are different ways of pursuing God. You can live your life and you can miss it. It's the truth. So what I want to do is, is, is look at what Jesus says. Look at two pathways that he sets up. Two guys pursuing this life of knowing and experiencing God to the fullest. So if you turn in your Bibles to Luke 18, we'll get started this morning. Luke 18, verse 9. And really what I want to look at... Um, is Jesus, he paints this picture. I love that Jesus tells stories. He understands this. He knows that if I was just to say, hey, let's really just love God and really do it, and uh, this would be great if you guys could just follow Jesus. That half of you, if I just kept on like that, you'd be asleep. I love that Jesus tells us stories. It draws our imaginations out. He, he makes us a part of this story. And so we want to look at a story that he tells to a group of people. Um, and I love it because it's so simple. It's probably a story that you've read before, and like all Jesus' words and like the scripture itself, it's so easy just to pass over and be like, 
Uh, I can pick myself out in the story. I'm not this guy. I'm this guy. And it's real easy just to whip through this thing and kind of go, yeah, we got this thing nailed. But I love that it's unsuspecting and, and we end up just getting smacked in the face sometimes with the truth. So Luke, Luke 18, verse 9, and it says this. He told this parable to some who trusted in themselves. Trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Sweet, not us, right? That's, the first, that's my first thought, right? Sweet, that's not, I don't think that's me, right? You think about that, trusted in themselves and were righteous and treated others with contempt. Good, we're okay so far. And uh, as he goes on, this is what Jesus says. It's a really simple story. Two guys doing the same thing. Two men went into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, other a tax collector. So two men pursuing this life. Two men going to the same thing. Going to the temple to meet with God. One a Pharisee and one a tax collector. I hate that um, Pharisee and tax collector come with all this baggage that we already have. Because we immediately go, Pharisee, bad guy. Tax collector, good guy. But that wouldn't be the sense back in the day. Uh, a Pharisee is someone who protected the law. That while everyone else was following the world and, and did whatever they want, a Pharisee was someone who protected the truths, the, the scriptures, the law, and devoted their lives to them. They'd memorize the entire scriptures, all of the Old Testament. These guys devoted themselves to living a life pursuing God. These were the churchgoers. These were the pastors. These guys were in it. They wanted it. They wanted to protect it. They wanted their whole life to be defined by God's word. And then you have the tax collector, which in our mind also is like, oh, these are the good guys, right? Because that's always the story in the scriptures. And I was trying to think about how do we get out of this tax collector good guy thing? Because a tax collector is someone who was rich already and then cheated people out of their money who were poor. So he already has enough money and he keeps cheating. This is, these guys were despised. Translation says a despised tax collector. And, and in our day, I'm going, who is despised, rich, just has it all? You think of these, uh, like Enron guys, right? These guys that have everything already planned. I mean, they got all the money in the world, you'd think. And yet they cheat people out of their money, cheat the system, and they, and, and they make poor people poorer and get more money. These guys that we would just despise and go, I can't believe they do. They treat people so unfair. This, this is the type of guy we're dealing with when we look at the, the tax collector. Two guys pursuing the same thing. A Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Verse 11. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this here tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. That's it. That's what he says. This is his prayer. Tax collector. And immediately, if you're imagining it, you go, I don't know where you go to. I go, is, do I do this? Right? Because Jesus is making a point. I'm like, am I this guy? Do I pray so other people notice? Uh, do I just want other people to hear me? Do I judge people? No, I don't, I don't think I do that. I don't, I don't pray so that other people would hear me. I don't look at someone and go, Oh, man, I am so glad I am not like Kip. I mean, that is just, Lord, thank you for saving me from that. I don't, I don't think I'm that kind of a person. And I read it and I kind of go, gosh, Lord, thank you that I'm not like that. Thank you that I'm not like this, this Pharisee. 
I don't judge people. I understand. I, I, this is just, I just thank you that I'm not like that, right? And we just, boom, we're there. We're in that seat. And that's the trickiest thing about, I love the simplicity and the depth of this story because this position, the, the thing that's so hard about that position is that you can't see yourself. He doesn't, he, he doesn't see himself correctly. He's self-deceived. And as Christians, it's so easy for us to just, just settle right in there, not even see it. So we just whip right past this. Because you can't see yourself. You become self-deceived. And that's the worst thing, because you can't see yourself. And then you start to judge people. It's, it's so, so easy to slip into this in Lebanon. I was driving the other day in Lebanon, I don't know if you guys know Lebanon, Oregon, but I went from, granted, I went from Prineville to L.A. to Lebanon, 12 years in L.A., so Lebanon was a little bit of a shock again because Bend is now this cool, hip resort town, right? And I live in Lebanon where everyone has a gun rack, right? This is sweet again, right? And I remember driving down the street the other day, and I'm with the other camp director, and, and we're going back up to the camp, and this 1980s, I'm just going to be honest, 1980s, uh, Buick, or I don't even, like a Cavalier, or just one of those old sedans, comes rolling up. Couple in the front, couple in the front seat, guy's got a, a white tank top on, wife is sitting right there, tatted all up, got his camo hat, he's smoking, kids in the back, strapped in, right? He's going, man, what? Just look thrashed, I'm just like, gosh, how many times have I seen that? I'm just being honest. This is what I thought. Like, how many times have I seen like that same car with the same couple smoking and the kids in the back? It's just like, what are you doing? I can't believe that they would just the people fall into this trap that their whole lives can get sucked up into these addictions or, or or whatever. That I could just see someone and go, wow, 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 they're all the same. And then I I let that sink in a little bit and just go, holy smokes, I don't I don't know them, I don't know their story. I don't know what made them them. I'm looking at them going, gosh, Lord, I'm so thankful that I can see myself, that I'm not trapped in that. And I just, boom, I'm into this. And we do this all the time looking around. I'm so thankful that I get it. So thankful that we're not like that church. It's easy. You just slip right into this thing, and you shift your judgment. Jesus is saying, don't shift your judgment, just don't judge. Don't judge at all. Don't shift judgment to someone who you think deserves the judgment. Because as soon as you do that, as soon as you judge, you remove yourself from the mess that you're a part of. You take your, yourself out of the realities of life, that we're all sinful, that none of us deserves it, that none of us get it. And he's saying, just don't go there. Don't shift to the, don't shift to the Pharisee. Just don't go there. Don't judge. It's not for you to judge, lest you be judged. It's the crazy thing about the Pharisee, and it's, and it's so sad and the reason that it's sad is because he misses it. He gives his whole life, whole life to following God, and he misses it. He spends his whole life thinking he gets it, and other people don't. So thankful I'm not like that guy. 
He lives his whole life, and he doesn't get it. He lives his whole life serving God. He memorizes the entire Old Testament. He sits on the law day and night. Ties it to his hands and his body and memorizes everything. This is a guy that's immersed in this, and he misses it. He spends his whole life thinking he's living for God, and he misses it. This is the scene in Acts when Stephen is standing before this council of Pharisees, and, and he's standing there, and he just tells them the story. He tells them from Abraham all the way through to Jesus. They say, defend yourself, and he just gives them the story of the Bible, and they're going, we've heard this, we know this. And at the end of his speech, right before he gets stoned to death, he goes, you had all this, and you didn't get it. You were deaf. You missed it. He actually says, you had it delivered to you on wings of an angel. Angels came down and said, this is the answer to life. This is it. This is it right here. An angel delivered it to your doorstep, and you missed it. And these Pharisees just get enraged, and they stone him. We'll show you who gets it. You can live your whole life on top of it and miss it. That's why this is a scary passage. Because this, this is the religious guy. This isn't the sinner. This is who Jesus talks to. Then we look at Enron. We shift to the tax collector. The guy who cheats for a living. The guy who oppresses people. I think it's crazy that he's the hero of the story. Let's read first. It says this. But the tax collector, standing far off, wouldn't even lift his eyes up to heaven. But he beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to to me, a sinner. That's a hit one sentence. He huddles in the corner. He doesn't look up. He's in anguish. He beats his chest and just says, God, just, just be merciful to me, a sinner. Oh. This is the guy that cheats for a living. I love that it doesn't go any further. That's not like, and then he went home and changed his ways and lived a good life. No, just, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus goes, guess who's the hero of the story? Enron. He says this. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Winner. He got it. He's going to heaven. Hero of the story. This man walks away justified. Mike Gowing from Whittier Hills. Sunday school. Taught me what justified means. Just as if I never sinned. Justified. This man walks away clean. This guy walks away and God looks at him and says, this guy is clean as if if he's never sinned before. He is justified in my eyes. This is a man who's close to my heart. This is my child who is now clean with my blood. I will make him clean. This man walks away justified. Not the man who gave his whole life to the scriptures. That's, That's crazy. It's almost scary to think about that. It's like the thief on the cross. He can't do anything. Jesus looks and goes, paradise. Paradise because you knew you were a sinner and you knew you needed me. 
just like the guy that's worked his whole life, he gets in. This guy walks away justified. How? How and why? Why is that the story? How can that be? We're supposed to give our whole lives to God. We're supposed to fall in with all. How is this guy close to the storm? How does this guy know it? What is it that he understands? He understands himself. He sees himself correctly. When he comes to God, these two guys coming to God, he doesn't come with his defenses up. No defense with with who he is. Doesn't bring out the show. He says, these are the darkest things of my life. Darkest sins. This is who I am, and all I got is your mercy. And God says, this is the way, this is the path to life. When you know that you're broken, and you know that you need my mercy, and I don't, I don't want some pretend thing. I want who you are. I want the bad husband that you are. I want the deepest, darkest sins of your life. Don't hide that from me. This is what I want from you. I don't want anything else. I don't want this pious, just bring me who you are. That's what this guy understood. And this is what defines our lives. Not that we get it, not that we're good enough, that we just bring who we are to Christ and Christ makes us. This guy was attentive to mercy. He realized that he needed mercy more than anything else. Mercy needs to define our lives. We need to stay close to mercy because that's who we are. People have been shown mercy. My brother recently took a job at a church, a pretty traditional church, super concerned with the style of worship. Just, you know, like if we don't have enough rock and roll guitar, we just may not make it. It's a good church, but just just so... I watched him like the third Sunday he was there. I was in the, I was in the pew. He walks up on stage by himself, and no one's on stage. He goes, "We're not going to sing this morning." I'm like, "Oh no! What do you? What are this is death right here, man? These people have had 70 years of singing, and now you're going to take it away." He goes, "We're not going to sing." It's just that, like that awkward silence. You're like, "Oh no!" And he goes, then, "He goes, we're going to share," and that's even worse, right? When the sharing comes out, you're like, "No." Don't give people microphones, man. <laughs> Plus, it's just super awkward in between. I'm like, this is just, and you start sinking in your seat. You're like, I don't want to say anything, should I? I don't know. He goes, we're going to be attentive to mercy. I just want you to say how God's been merciful to you. And then it's like that awkward first two minutes. And he, and he doesn't say anything, he just stands there. I'm like, oh. So, just a little old lady raised her hand. I'm just, I'm just so thankful for my life. I'm just so thankful for my husband and that God showed me mercy through my husband. I have a good life. Oh, okay. Hands start popping. I'm just I'm so thankful for my house. I'm so thankful for a church and people who love me. I'm just, I'm, someone say, I'm just thankful for the mercy of God that I just get to live in America and enjoy meals and food and, and freedom. I'm so, I'm so thankful that God forgave me. Because I really messed up. Boom, just all over the place. And then it's just like, holy smokes, this is great, right? And then he, he kind of cuts it short. I mean, he goes for a while and he grabs the microphone and he, and he stands back up and he goes, did you feel what that did to your heart? When someone spoke of mercy in their life, you're like, yeah, God's been merciful to me. 
I don't, des- I don't deserve my wife and kids. I'm nobody. I'm so, I'm so thankful. And it just melts your heart. And when you're attentive to mercy, it's this act of worship. He goes, we just, we just worshiped. The hard part is some people didn't understand that. But still, we have to be people who are attentive to the mercy and close to that. Because it reminds us that we're nobody. That we, we're not people that point and go, I'm thankful I'm not like them. We're people who are close to mercy and understand their brokenness. Understand themselves. Don't run. This, this guy didn't run. He didn't try and be someone else. He didn't hide. He didn't try and make up excuses. He just came as he was and said, take this. God, be merciful. There's a quote I want to put up of A.W. Tozer. If you just take a second, I'll just let you read it by yourself. Talking about coming to God. First of all, he should put away all defense and make no attempt to excuse himself, either in his own eyes or before the eyes of the Lord. Whoever defends himself will have himself for his defense, and he will have no other But let him come defenseless before the Lord, and he will have for his defender no less than God himself. Let the inquiring Christian trample underfoot every slippery trick of his deceitful heart and insist upon frank and open relations with the Lord. I love that picture. If you're going to come to God, don't don't become defensive. Don't be making the list. I mean, how dumb is that? We're talking about the God of the universe. We're going to be like, yeah, but I'm a good dad. I'm a good da-da-da-da-da, whatever. And maybe you don't say it out loud, but this is what we harbor in our hearts. Well, God probably loves me because I still do some good stuff. He's going, don't don't make any excuse because you're going to defend yourself. If you make excuses, you're going to have yourself to defend against God. How does that feel? It's your little sword. Stay away, right? Oh, that means he's going to mash you, right? And then it's this awesome picture of saying, come defenseless, going like defenseless, going, I don't got anything. And boom, you have God behind you. You have the whole world. He says, the trick is, though, trample every deceit in your heart and come as yourself because that's all he came for. When Jesus Christ came, he said, I came for the broken, the poor, the people who know that they are sinners. I did not come for the healthy. I came for the sick. Know that we're sick. Let that define you. Let you just fall into mercy and the grace of God. And let that just define your life. And you'll have God as your defense. None of this puffing yourself up. Let it all go. It's that leaving that security, that safety, and letting God become it all. So hard. So hard. Because you know the darkest parts of your heart. You know your failings. You know where you just didn't make it. You know where you cheated. Maybe you think you're good. And it's so hard to give up our identities. I'm not going to reach for anything. I'm going to come defenseless and have God as a defender. This is the pathway to a life lived in the purposes of God. This is how we do it. I want to show you a little video clip since we got this massive screen. I wish I had some epic battle scene, but I don't. Um, of a clip of Rich Mullins. And if you don't know Rich anybody, you guys know Rich Mullins? Some of you? He wrote songs like Awesome God, everyone sang, you know, growing up. 
if, if you've been in the church. Sang a whole bunch of different songs, and maybe you don't like his music. It's not the most trendiest, but it's very, the majority of the time, it's very real and honest and raw. And he was a pretty famous Christian singer-songwriter. And um, he died, actually, a few years back in a car accident. Um, but it's a clip of just an interview with him. It's him talking about his life. Because artists, you know, Christian artists and just artists in general, they get put on a pedestal. And Christian artists that are riding close to the heart of God, these songs, worship songs, there's just a lot that you could latch onto for your identity. And this is him just kind of talking about his life a little bit. I uh, just became really keenly and uncomfortably aware of how, uh, you know, you think you're getting somewhere, you think you're uh, growing as a Christian, that kind of thing. And all of a sudden you're in a situation where you go, I am just as uh, susceptible as I, I was when I was 16 to a lot of things. And, and sometimes we can be really hard on ourselves about that. Well, Beaker and I were talking in a, in a uh, train station about the whole thing, where, kind of where we were and where we wanted to be. And we'd gone into some, actually, uh, some pretty explicit detail about the nature of our temptations and, and of those struggles. And, and this guy leans over, and we're in Germany, right? And so we're assuming no one's going to be interested enough in whatever we would have to say to actually bother to translate and listen. But this guy leans over in the train station, the only other guy in there, and he says, excuse me, but are you Rich Mullins? And so I had to think back over our conversation to see if I was or not, and decided that I must be. Whether or not I like who I am, that, that is who I am. And once again, it's back to the ragamuffin thing, the realization that people are going to judge you. And there are, 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 I think, actually people who look for excuses to condemn you and look for excuses to uh, say bad things about you. But God doesn't look for those kinds of excuses. And I think the conclusion of the matter for me was that I... Uh, I think I would rather live on the verge of falling and let my security be in the all-sufficiency, the grace of God, than to live in some kind of pietistic illusion of moral excellence. Not that I don't want to be morally excellent, but my faith isn't in, in, in the idea that, that I am more moral than anybody else. The, my faith is in, in the idea that God and his love are greater than whatever sins any of us commit. I love, I love that story because uh, it makes me feel a little more normal. You have this guy open up his heart, this Christian artist who's pretty successful. And I think there are, there are always times, a time will come in our lives when we ask the same question, whether it's, it's some sin we commit that's just heinous, or just the way, a rut that we've been stuck in of living life, not lived to God, or just your baggage of who you are and how you failed. And you just go, it's, it's, yeah, I love how he just goes, I had to look back and go, am I Rich Mullins? Or, or am I showing something else? That's, that, that's a dangerous moment. Because in that moment you can go, that's nah, not me. I'm the singer, songwriter, our God is an awesome God, Right? That's who I am. And I think we've got to dive into our hearts and go at the core of us, at the, at the darkest part of us, who are we? 
Is that who I am? And the, the, the right answer, the dangerous answer is yes, that's who I am. And not to run from it. And to fall on grace and mercy. How do you live your life that way? Because God calls us to so much. I want to be morally excellent as well. And I think that's a scary quote to hear someone say, I would rather live on the verge of falling. People don't say that. I would rather live on... No, you're not supposed to want to fall, like live on the verge of falling into sin. That's a dangerous thing to say. He goes, I would rather be there and fall into grace and mercy than to, to buy into some illusion of who I am. Because that's the wide path and the narrow path. It's a dangerous thing to ask yourself those questions and to come out with those conclusions. But it's what God demands of us. He says, just come as you are. I heard someone recently say, what would it be like if you were to stand on the pitcher's mound of Yankee Stadium, the stadium full, and someone on the jumbotron showed all your darkest moments of your life. Stuff that people don't know about. That would be really bad. <laughs> this is what God sees. And we got to run. We got to know and see throw ourselves headlong into grace and mercy and go, this is where I'm standing. I would rather stand on the verge of falling and fall on grace. This is, this is what defines us as a church. When we go out and meet people and live and love and spread this message, it is not judgment and condemnation. It is grace and mercy shown to others that they don't deserve because you didn't deserve it. And let that thing sink deep. The simple things of our faith, mercy and grace, let that sink deep and define your life. I want to finish with maybe my favorite story in the scripture. So if you turn to John 15. If I could be anywhere at a story, there's a lot of different places in the Bible that are super interesting. Um, crazy wars and things like that. Um, but this is a moment that I would just, I would love to be a fly on the wall or I'd love to be here. I want to live this morning. <laughs> 21, John 21. The scene is Jesus has died and he's been resurrected. Thank goodness, right? And all the disciples already left him and abandoned him except for like one. And he's been resurrected and then he's appeared twice to the disciples already. And uh, they don't really know what to do. They're kind of like little purposeless, haven't quite figured it out. All the dots haven't been connected yet. Jesus hasn't ascended yet, uh, but he's just, he's invisible and he's cruising around. I don't know what he's doing, right? But this is the story, uh, 21. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, Nathaniel of Cana of Galilee, and the sons of Zebedee, two others of disciples, were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we'll go with you. They went out, got into the boat. That night, they caught nothing. So Jesus has been resurrected, and they're back to square one, right? Where were they when Jesus called them? fishing I, I don't know what this means but i just know it's a beautiful story of like i guess we'll go fish peter's just like i'm going fishing i'm sick of sitting around right and everyone else is like all right let's go fishing we know that at least right so they hop in the boat and they don't catch anything and just as day was breaking jesus stood on the shore shore yet the disciples did not know that it was jesus 
great little piece to the story. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? I don't know if he's sarcastic, but I just feel like he is. So that don't, that's not interpretation, but hey, kids, you guys catch anything? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. This is hauntingly familiar, right? This is the first scene. When Jesus goes out on the boat with them, when they, this is like the first time they've been called, the first time they're spent with Jesus. And he's like, they haven't caught anything. And Peter's like, we haven't caught anything all day, but because you said so, we'll go back out, right? That's the first scene. And they throw it to the other side. And so they don't know it's Jesus yet. And he's like, hey, cast your net to the other side. And they're like, okay. And they're like, wait a minute. <laughs> it has to be that. Because they're like, wait, wait a minute. That sounds familiar. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, it's the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment for he was stripped for work and threw himself into the sea. I mean, this is fantastic. This is your best friend, right? This is, this is Peter feels so much for Jesus. He's denied him. Jesus loves him still. And so he realizes that it's Jesus and they're a hundred yards out. And, and John goes, it's Jesus. Okay, boom, in the water, right? And he starts swimming in. It's just, I want to get there. I just want to be with Jesus. I love it. I love that scene of just, like, I don't care. Put on all my clothes and I'm swimming in. The other disciples came into the boat, dragging the net full of fish. For they were not far from the land, but about 100 yards. What is, <laughs> I never saw that. They were not far from land, only about 100 yards. 100 yards is a long time to swim, I think. So anyways, sorry about that. When they got out on the land, they saw charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring out some fish that you've just caught. Would, I would love this. I love breakfast. And I would love if I was at my camp and I go outside in the morning at my fire pit in my front yard and Jesus is sitting there going, hey, let's have some breakfast. Let's just chill and eat and talk. I mean, that, that is beautiful. I would love to be there. Just spend the morning talking with Jesus over some breakfast. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore, full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them. And so with the fish, this was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. That's how it's set up, just this beautiful morning. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? I, I hate and I love this part. I feel like this is so heartbreaking. If you were in Peter's shoes, who, who denied not only your best friend, not only Jesus as God, right, but your best friend. You ever betrayed a best friend to his face? Someone you just had time and experience with? Can you just imagine that? And being reunited with them. And then they look and they go, do you love me? Jesus, this is Jesus. And he looks to Peter and he just goes, hey, do you love me, Peter? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know. You know that I love you. Feed my lambs, he said. Then he said a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. Then he said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because... He said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. 
Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. There's a whole bunch going on of restoration for Peter, denying him three times to his face, getting to say, I love you three times to his face. It's just this intense moment. And people go all over the board like, do you agape me? I phileo you. I phileo. Do you agape? You know, all these different types of loves. And I think there is an importance of the restoration of what's happening in this moment. But we, we always focus on this love and what's going on here. And three times Jesus says, and, and it's just agonizing for Peter because you know that Peter loves him. You know he's just that fiery guy who stands up and chops off people's ears like, I'm going to die. I'll die for you. The same one that got caught up and cursed Jesus, to, cursed and then denied Jesus to his face while other people were killing him. And Peter's like, you know it. I'm so sorry. I, you know that I love you, Jesus. And three times Jesus goes, just feed my sheep, tend my sheep, feed my sheep. Why would he just be impressing this moment onto Peter? Why would three times he say, feed my sheep, tend my sheep, feed my sheep? Peter's the rock that the church will be built on. When Peter goes, if you just think about Peter, when Peter goes to preach about Jesus Christ, what what is he going to stand up and say to people? You know what? The law was laid down and you got to abide by the law. God is a holy God and we got to live this way. We got to live like we mean it. We got to follow the Ten Commandments. We got to do this thing. This is how it works. Is he going to stand up and say that? How can he say that? He looked Jesus in the eyes and say, Jesus was my best friend on the planet and he was God. And I looked him in the eyes and I denied him three times to his face. We sin and, and aren't, don't have a tangible face. We just feel so guilty. Peter sinned and denied the, the Lord of the universe in human flesh and his best friend three times. He's going to say, mercy and grace upon me because I denied my best friend in Jesus. Trust in Jesus Christ. When he goes to feed the flock, I, I feel like Jesus is saying, Peter, you get it. I know you get it because you, you denied me three times to my face. And I know how much you love me. And I know there's no way that you're going to go preach something that just says, hey, well up something and be a Christian, be a good person. He's, <laughs> Peter can't say that. Give that to people. Feed my sheep. Give that to people. This is it. Peter, you get it more than anyone. Let this define your life, Peter. Let this define my soul. Let this define this church. A people fully dependent on the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ with their whole selves, not half, their whole selves. And it's incredibly dangerous. It's like leaving all the comfort and security of your life and climbing to the top of the tree and having no control and being caught up in the storm of God and knowing life how it was meant to be lived. This is what he calls us to. Let's pray. Father, I just pray that your spirit would work in our hearts. I don't deserve it. We don't deserve it. Don't know what else to pray. Just define us. 
help us throw ourselves at your feet and lose our identity and lose our life and find it. Praise these things in Christ's name. Amen.